0: All right, you can open your Bibles to Daniel. As we already heard, we're in Daniel and chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And I just want to give a little bit of a background um, as we're entering a new book. And really entering a new, a new time period in a sense. We uh, finished out uh, last week in Jeremiah, and really uh, we were continuing a series through Kings and Chronicles, which of course um, is historical account of the children of Israel and God's dealings with them. As uh, the Lord raised up different kings for them, remember the kingdom was split into the northern and the southern, or as uh, perhaps the scriptures would say at times, Israel and Judah. There was a split kingdom in Israel, but nonetheless, uh, history is recorded there as different kings are brought up in their midst, and uh, we know that they were a a backslidden people for the most part. We remember the kings were not good kings, and the children of Israel were not living for the Lord as they should have lived for the Lord. Uh, They were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to be the Lord's people, but they certainly weren't living like that. And so the Lord would send prophets to them, prophets who would come and plead with them to change their ways. And um, at times there were uh, little periods where it seemed like things might be turning for the better in a spiritual sense. But then uh, they were just back to their old ways under perhaps a new wicked king. And that was kind of how the history went. Now, if you were to follow the history as we went through uh, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the next book would be Ezra. And Ezra would introduce you to a king by the name of Cyrus. And if you were to go just straight, just as it follows, straight from Second Chronicles right into Ezra, well, you would miss a portion of time, a portion of history. And that's what we're going to be considering today. So at the end of Chronicles, as we remembered last week, we know that uh, that The kingdom of Judah, which was the the only remaining uh, uh, kingdom in Israel, was besieged. Well, we're going to read that again today. It's going to repeat it here in Daniel. But the Lord brought brought a pagan king and a pagan kingdom to bring about his purposes among his people. Well, we were just remembering, weren't we? That God may be very well using things in our culture, in our country, in the world around us for his purposes. Well, we know that he is, don't we? There is a sovereign God, and He is ruling. We're going to learn that a little bit this morning. That God is using things among uh, the, the affairs of men, among the kingdoms of men, to bring about His purposes. And and so the Lord was going to bring. We're going to find He brings a, a pagan king. He's perhaps one of the most well-known pagan kings by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to come and he's going to uh, basically uh, besiege Jerusalem. That is, he encircles it literally. He cuts off their supplies, it's all out war, and he, he takes over, he takes captives from them, and the, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity. So that's where we are, and it's very important. This is a very, very important part of Israel's history, the captivity, and that's, where, that's what we're going to be considering this morning. So uh, again, this brings us to the book of Daniel, and we're going to get kind of uh, some history here from both Daniel and from Jeremiah of God's working among the people of Israel, uh, specifically among some, as we consider with Daniel, it's kind of a a honed-in view on a few men and their interactions with the king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon. As at that time, all of the children of Israel were taken into captivity. They were either subdued, if they stayed in the land, they were subdued to the king Nebuchadnezzar, or they were taken off captive, and I'm sure many of them were were slain at at the edge of the sword. So Daniel uh, chapter one. And uh, let's let's read the chapter and then um, Lord willing, I'm going to give a few uh, thoughts as far as overview of the book. Very, very brief. Okay, this is going to be a very brief overview, but we're going to do that. And then we're going to consider some of the content of Daniel in chapter one. And these are uh, this is a very familiar story. And I trust that the Lord will bless us as we read it. And as we take some uh, practical lessons from it in the third year, Daniel chapter one and verse one in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature. Of the Chaldeans, or Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their their portion of delicacies and the wine, that they were that they were to drink and gave them vegetables as for these four young men god gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before nebuchadnezzar then the king interviewed them and among them all none was found like daniel hananiah Mishael and Azariah therefore they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus let's just pray our father we do thank you again for this time to look into your word We do believe that this is your word, that you've given it to us as a revelation of who you are and of things that we ought to know about you and how we ought to behave, how we ought to act in this world. Help us, Lord, we pray, as we look into your word, both to rightly divide it, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. We give you the thanks. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to give just a little bit of Uh, Just a couple of points about the book of Daniel in general, very quickly. The book of Daniel is very practical. Okay, we just read, I hope that you were able to follow along, a very practical uh, historical account. Hey, we love narratives, don't we? Don't we? This is a nice narrative. Very easy to read, easy to follow. It's a story. The book of Daniel is very practical. We can learn from the book of Daniel some tremendous practical lessons. Well, Daniel was called into a a foreign land, right? He didn't really belong there, so to speak. He wasn't a citizen of Babylon, but that's where God had placed him. And so we can look at Daniel and we can see how he behaved, what he did, how he responded. And we can learn lessons because you and I, no doubt, well, the word of God says, right, we're strangers, we're sojourners in this land. This home is not our land. We're just passing through. We are citizens of heaven, the scripture says. So we can learn some very practical lessons about how we are to live life and behave. How do we deal with the kings around us? How do we deal with our masters and and, uh, bosses and all that kind of a thing? But it's not just practical, it's also prophetical. There's some, if, if you know anything about Daniel, well, you may know some of the, the, the familiar stories. But other than that, you, you would know that Daniel is a very prophetic book. Daniel has, some have said it is the backbone of biblical prophecy, that it has some tremendous, tremendous uh, prophetical aspects, prophecies that were laid out, prophecies that came true. So while it is a practical book, We don't want to miss that. That's very important. And today the lesson is going to be more practical than it is prophetical. We also don't want to forget that Daniel is a very prophetic book. There are some prophecies in there that are quite tremendous, which I'm sure we're going to get to in days to come. Now, if we were to give uh, a major theme to the book of Daniel, I think that most of the commentators, most of the Bible scholars would say it's something to do with this, the sovereign hand of God, working among the kingdoms and lives of men. I hate to say that's the major theme, but that is at least a major theme. That is a major part of the book of Daniel. The sovereign hand of God working among the kingdoms and lives of men. Think about this for a minute. Well, look at the verse there. This is Daniel 4 and verse 17. Hey, these words, if I understood correctly, these words in Daniel 4, in verse 17, came from, I believe it was Nebuchadnezzar himself, that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And there's some other parts of that verse that are just tremendous. But just think about this part for a minute. That the living may know that those who are alive and, and going about and doing their daily business, that they would know that there is a God in heaven who's overruling. As uh, Warren Wiersbe said, when God is not allowed to rule, he will overrule. And so that, that the living would know that you and I would know that there is a God in heaven and that he rules over the kingdoms of men. But not only that. Not only is he sovereign among the kingdoms of men, that's big picture, right? That's big picture. That God, maybe this event in Paris, I'm sure in some way or another, God has a purpose for this. That God is, is involved in things in a big, at a high level. Big picture. God is in control. God is sovereign. And we're going to see that in the very first and second verse of Daniel 1. But not only that, but that God is sovereign and working in the lives of individuals. Not just that he's a big picture God, and indeed he is, that he rules among the kingdoms of men, but that also he's a personal God, that he's a God that is that is interested in your life and in my life. And thank God he's an omnipotent God that he could not only over he could overrule the kingdoms of men, big picture, but he could simultaneously deal in your and my lives. He's interested in you and he's sovereignly working in our lives. This is kind of a big theme throughout the book of Daniel, and we're going to see it here uh, in the very first chapter. Um, now, if I were to put an outline to Daniel chapter 1, it would be something like this uh, verses 1 through 4, we consider a siege and a selection. The city was besieged, and then Nebuchadnezzar selected certain ones that he would bring into his kingdom. A siege and a selection. And then 5 through the uh chap uh sorry verse 5 through the first half of verse 8 a provision and a purpose right the king was going to give a daily provision to these people that he uh that he took and brought into his training ground so to speak but there was a purpose there perhaps our favorite verse in all of Daniel we just sung about it this morning dare to be a daniel dare to have a purpose firm that's the idea that daniel had purposed in his heart That he would not defile himself. So there's a provision offered, but there's a purpose there as well. A purpose, and that is Daniel's purpose, to not be defiled. Uh, Verse 8 through verse 17, we're going to see a request and a response. Daniel, in great boldness, makes a request to the, the steward that's over him. There's a request and a response. And then finally, a meeting and a miracle. And this is just a a sketch of an outline. I'm not saying that this is anything more than that. It's just a little bit of a framework to think about the chapter. So, verse 1 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I want to think with you for a minute. About this city, Babylon. It gives me a little bit of chills just just thinking about the name Babylon. As I've looked through the scriptures to see the significance, the importance, this city holds a, a tremendous place in in the Word of God and in history. It's not just any old city, you know. This Babylon. It began. Back in Genesis in chapter 10. Would you look back at Genesis 10 for just a moment? I want to quickly think about this city, Babylon. Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing the Lord has laid on my heart this morning, it's thoughts concerning the city of Babylon. Because you and I live in a a culture, in a world, not much has changed. Things are very much like the Babylon of that day. And, and many uh, Bible scholars have said there's something of the spirit of Babylon. That Babylon is not just a sitting, but it represents a mindset. It represents an attitude, a character of men who defy God and want nothing to do with Him. So Genesis 10, we're introduced to a man named Nimrod. And just quickly, because it's really, this is just very brief, it says in 10, Genesis 10, 8, Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, the biblical term, a mighty one, is often used of warriors. Okay, it's the similar term that was given to Goliath, a mighty one. This was a mighty one. So he was a man of prominence, no doubt. He he was going to uh, begin to be exalted, and he was a warrior. Many extra-biblical sources have uh, the same idea that's come from it, that Nimrod was a warrior. It says this, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Many have said, including extra biblical sources, that this man was perhaps not so much a hunter of just the the standard game, but he was more of a hunter of the souls of men than anything else. He wanted a kingdom for himself. Well, look at what it says in verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And that's all I want to read from Genesis 10. So this is where the city of Babylon begins, so to speak, in its infancy is here with this man, Nimrod. Now, Genesis 11 says this. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Genesis 11 is going to account for us the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel. The land of Shinar is the same land of Babylon. It's the same proximity. It's the same land. But what's significant is this. Listen to to the thought process of the people. It says, then they said to one another, these are the people that were on the earth at this time. Remember, God had flooded the earth, brought judgment. People began to repopulate. I believe this is a couple hundred years after the flood. And the people said, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Remember what the command of the Lord was to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth, spread out, fill the earth. These people here, the people of the earth at that time, they made a decision. They said, we're not going to spread out upon the face of the earth there's strength in numbers, you know. We'll stay together. And not only that, but we're going to build ourselves a city. A city represents a, 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 a safety, security. It represents pleasures and fun. We know what the big city is about, right? Oftentimes people say, I'm going to move because I want to be uh, in the big city. And then there are others who say, I want to move to be out in the country. But whatever the case, the city represents that. It's a place of security. There's safety there in the city. There's pleasures there in the city. It says that the top is going to be in heaven, and we're going to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Others have notated, and I'm kind of just stealing some of their material, but it says, let us, man would be the source, build us, or build ourselves, man would be the means by which it happened. And it would be for a name for ourselves that man would be the end of it all. Man would be the source. Man would be the means by which it would happen, and man would be the end of it all. This was all about man. This, brothers and sisters, is Babylon. The spirit of Babylon is the spirit of humanism that we do not need God. We can do things ourselves. Even down to the materials, as I understand it, look at the way this is worded. Verse 3 of Genesis 11 says, They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Brick would be man-made, right? We use bricks. I'm not, I'm not downing it. Bricks are very, very helpful in architecture. But even the materials that were used, stone would be something that was from the earth, that was God-given. But they said, no, 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 we'll use brick. And we'll use slime for mortar. Others have said, and I find it quite interesting, that the same word for uh, asphalt or slime, as your uh, translation may say, Is the same word used for pitch? Do you remember what pitch was used for? To coat the ark that Noah was placed into as a baby. What was significant about pitch? Pitch was waterproof. Well, we're going to put him into the river, aren't we? It ought to be waterproof. What had God done to the earth back in Genesis chapter 6? Flooded the earth. And here is man saying, we're going to build a tower we're going to build it up to the heavens it'll be by us it'll be through us and it'll be for us and we're going to coat it with pitch so that it'll be waterproof we'll be exempt so to speak from the judgment of god this was man this was what their this was the babylonian ideology and brothers and sisters look in the word of god i'm not making this up look indeed at daniel and daniel in chapter 4 i believe it is Daniel chapter 4, listen to the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king spoke, Daniel 4, verse 30, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Isn't this great Babylon? Oh, I am the source of it. I'm the means by which it happened, and I'll be the end of it all. It's for the glory of my honor, it's for my majesty. And what did God do? Of course, you know the story. God brought Nebuchadnezzar down to his knees, down to nothing. But the scripture goes beyond that, and there's so much more that could be said, but I want to take you briefly to the book of Revelation. Many of you know this. Do you know that Babylon is mentioned in the book of Revelation? And it's not just mentioned. It's elaborated in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 18. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to suggest to you that the spirit of Babylon, and again, these are just thoughts. I'm not saying this is totally conclusive or complete. But if you look up here at the screen for a moment, the spirit of Babylon has to do with religionism. We're going to see that. Man-made religion. It has to do with materialism, possessions, the things that we can grab onto. Oh, you know how the world loves their materials. We love our possessions, and we have the same flesh, don't we? We love our possessions. This was the spirit of Babylon. Hedonism. That is, the, they were lovers of pleasure. Give it all to me. Philippians 3 says, whose God is their belly. This is the spirit of Babylon. And ultimately, at the center of it all was humanism. No need for God. We can do it on our own. We can use our own materials. We'll make our own way to heaven. The top will reach up to heaven. We'll waterproof it just in case. This was of man. This is humanism. Listen to the way this is worded in Revelation 18. And I don't pretend to fully understand the the book of the Revelation. Boy, there's a lot there. But I do know that Babylon is specifically mentioned by name. And it says this, it says this in verse chapter 18 and verse two or verse one. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Verse nine. Listen to this. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour, your judgment has come. The kings were weeping and mourning because the whole system came crumbling down in one hour. Just like back in Daniel, where we're going to see in a few chapters. Well, not this morning, but we'll get into it. Babylon is brought to its knees in one night. Here in the book of Revelation, we learn that the spirit of Babylon, that system of, of materialism and religionism and hedonism and humanism is going to be brought to its knees in an hour, in just a moment. And it says the kings of the earth, they're weeping and crying. Alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city for in one hour, your judgment has come. And the merchants as well, the merchants of the earth in verse 11 of Revelation 18 will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, Listen, cinnamon. It includes all of it, all of the goods of mankind, everything. And they see the smoke of it rising up and they weep and lament. Oh, that great city Babylon has fallen. It's fallen. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you this morning, do not put your life into the spirit of Babylon. Don't let it control you. That spirit that says that possessions are everything. That spirit that says, I don't need God. I can do it on my own. That spirit that that has a form of godliness. There's religionism out there. It's all over the world around us. But it's not the true God. It's not the living God. It's not Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And hedonism, it's all around us. You know that. You see it all around you. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't fall prey to the spirit of Babylon. It, It began there. Well, for one moment, look all the way back in Genesis. You might say, where did all of this come from? Who's behind it all? Genesis in chapter 3 says this. Now the serpent, we all know who that was. Satan was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He immediately questions the word of God. This is Satan himself. And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. There's lots there that we could talk about, but let's think about this. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. That's the promise of Satan. Humanism. You will be like God. The idea is like if I told you. If, some, if someone came to me and said, well, I really want a Lexus. And I said, well, hey, listen, I see a Toyota over here, and it's just like the Lexus. The idea is that the Toyota would be in place of the Lexus. Well, that's exactly what Satan was saying. You will be like God. You have no need of God. You will be a God unto yourself. This is the spirit of Babylon. This is the scene that Daniel and his friends were entering into. A city perv- pervaded with religionism materialism, hedonism, and ultimately humanism. What a place it was. Brothers and sisters, I wanted to take you to the New Testament and show you what the Lord Jesus and what the New Testament writers have to say about religionism and about materialism and about humanism and about hedonism. The New New Testament is filled with thoughts of this. Let me just think of just this one because I think this is probably the one that, uh, that grasps us the most, materialism. We, in our flesh, love possessions, don't we? I mean, that is the reality of who we are. We love possessions. You remember that rich fool in Luke chapter 12? There was a rich fool in Luke chapter 12. And this is what it says. I just wonder, because this is so important to me. if I were to look around the world around us, and I were to look at my own life, materialism is a struggle for every one of us. One from the crowd in Luke 12:13 said, "Teacher speaking to Jesus, "Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. He goes on to say regarding this fool in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Materialism is denounced by the Lord Jesus. I know that we need things to survive. I understand that. We do. We need things. But remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6. Take no thought about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. May God help us. The spirit of Babylon pervades our culture, brothers and sisters. If you think it doesn't have any effect on you, it has an effect on us, me included. Christ is first and foremost. He is everything. There's so much more that could be said. Boy, if you look at throughout the New Testament, I just want to make a few comments on Daniel Chapter 1. So let's go back there briefly. The story, we read it, and we're going to try to add a few more comments to it before we close. It says in verse 2 that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem. By the world's standards, by man's standards, this was a military victory. And indeed it was. But from the eyes of Daniel, the writer of this book, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sovereignly in control, that he reigns over the kingdoms of men? It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. You can see here in verse 2 some of the idea of the religionism that pervaded. Nebuchadnezzar was a man of gods. Don't get me wrong. He had lots of them, too many to count. And it says that he would take the treasures that he won, the spoils from the temple in Judah, and place them into the treasure house of his God. Just mix them all together. Let it be. He was okay with that. Hey, some people think and give him credit because he did show some level of respect. You remember what Belshazzar did with the the vessels, right? He partied with them, he used them to drink and have a feast. Well, at least Nebuchadnezzar put them into his temple, I suppose you could say. But he mixed them in among the other gods and made them just like one of the other. I'm sure maybe he had a museum there as people would come through and he would show them his accomplishments. Look at, the, look at the lands I've taken over. Here's all the spoils of victory. He mixed them all together. I wonder, I wonder what things in our life that are the Lord's have become commonplace. Have we t- taken things that are treasures for the Lord and we just kind of mixed him in among the rest of the gods of, in our life? And I say that loosely. I hope we don't have gods. I know that we constantly are fighting against gods around us as things pop up, idols in our life. I hope that we haven't taken the the treasure of God, of who he is, of his beloved son, and just kind of mixed him in among the rest of our gods. Oh, he's part of my life. But he's not all of my life. I think he's my savior, but my Lord, my master, the one in first place, I don't know about that. I just kind of mixed him in there. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. It says the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, some of the nobles. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar had a military plan and he said, We're just, we'll are we'll just defeat the city, and then we'll take the best of the best. Listen to this description. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. It sounds like a, like a dating profile, doesn't it? <laughs> No blemish, that's me, I'm good looking, gifted and all wisdom, no. But this is what he wanted, the best of the best. He was going to take them and he was going to make them part of his kingdom. And we're going to see that he, he's going to brainwash them. He's going to, see, he's going to change their name. He's going to do all kinds of things to bring them and, and, and acclimate them to the culture of Babylon. But you know the story. Daniel would stand firm. There's lots more that could be said. I want to skip ahead a little bit to verse 8, only due to time. There's lots more that could be said there. As the king appointed in verse 5 a daily provision for Daniel. You know what we find about Daniel? Daniel had his own daily provision. Daniel had a daily provision of the scriptures and prayer. In Daniel 9, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. He was a man of the scriptures. That was his daily provision. And when he's cast into the lion's den... And uh, it's found uh, that he uh, uh, is alive. Says, I'm sorry, before he's cast into the lion's den, why he was cast into the lion's den was because he went up in that window and he prayed. It says, as his custom was from early days. That was his daily provision, was the scriptures and prayer. He fed on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the world has a lot to offer you. You've been, you've, you have put before you daily the provisions of the world, the delicacies of the world. You can just, we can spend hours, can't we? On news, Facebook, whatever it is. Of course, there's things much more wicked than that. I get that. But these things, the world puts before you a daily provision. Don't neglect the daily provision of what God has given you. In his word and in prayer to take part in the delicacies of the things around you. They're all over. There's tons of them. There's no end to them. If you look at Revelation 18, it's all listed there. It's all listed there. Can I say something else about Babylon that I have seen? It seems to me that there are little Babylons rising and falling all the time in our culture. There are people who, who well, they love the delicacies around them and, and they pursue them wholeheartedly. All the things we talked about. And they may think they have it all for a moment and then sometimes it's just a phone call you have cancer. Your son has died. Whatever it is. And all of a sudden, their Babylon has come crumbling down. Don't get lost in that. There are daily provisions from the Lord that are so blessed, so tremendous. There's a delight in spending time with the Lord and feeding on Him. He has that available to you. But boy, the world has a lot to offer, doesn't it? Very difficult to feed on His provisions. Perhaps our favorite verse in the whole book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 8, says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. I'm going to close with this first, brothers and sisters. There's lots more that could be said. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I want to make one practical little application that the Lord made real to me. Oftentimes we say the Lord has called us to be different, and that is true in a sense. I don't know that there's a specific verse that specifically says that, but I get the idea. Christians undoubtedly are going to be different, but our calling is not just to be different for the sake of being different. Daniel was different because he purposed not to be defiled. He would not be defiled with the king's delicacies. These were things that were contrary to the word of God. God had given them dietary restrictions, and this was just the word of God to him. God said, I'm gonna, I should do it this way, so this is the way I'm gonna do it. Others around me, they may laugh, they may scoff, they may not understand it, but I'm gonna do what God has asked me to do. He wasn't different just for the sake of being different. Let's not find ways of just being odd. But let's be purposeful not to be defiled with the world around us. Let's be purposeful to be devoted to the provisions that God has given us. In that sense, let us be different. Not just be different to be odd, but be different to not be defiled. Remember the Lord Jesus' example? He was holy and spotless without blemish. That's the way he walked this earth. And I have many references filled I wanted to go to as well from the New Testament where God has called us to purity, to holiness, and it's a tremendous blessing to live a life unspotted from the world. That was Daniel. And I want to make one last comment as we close. Daniel would do such a thing in a public way when he was called to. Not that we go around just advertising things we do or don't do because God told us to do them. But when the time is appropriate, what a privilege! To be able to publicly take a stand for the Word of God. Do you believe the Word of God to that degree? That amidst the possibility of consequences, it could have been the head, at a minimum, ridicule? Do you believe the Word of God to that degree? That you would be willing to take a stand publicly, to side with the truth? Some have said the book of Daniel is a whole... whole uh, uh, Um, spelling out of truth versus power, would you stand for the truth in that way? What a privilege it is to be a child of God. May God help us that we would not be taken captive to the spirit of Babylon, but we would be willing to be like Daniel in the world, but not of the world. Heaven is our home. That's our citizenship. What a privilege. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the blessing that it is to look into your word. Our Father... I just confess to you, even now, that so much has been missed in this first chapter. I know that, even of things that you've showed to me. Lord, I pray that you would take that which you've given, and that which you've spoken, and use it in our hearts. We do not want to leave unchanged as those would be, as those who would not be doers of the world of the word, but hearers only. We don't want to be like that, our Father. Help us, we pray. We thank you for your your tremendously incredibly blessed word that you put before us that we could look into it and know things about you and know things about life that we don't have to be caught up in the lies of the devil, the lies that Satan has put forward. May you help us, our Father, we pray. Bless us as we part. We give you thanks. Help us to be a lighthouse here to the community around us that we would take a public stand when we need to, when we're called to and that otherwise we would be true in our private time to walk with you in a real way, loving your word, loving to speak with you. Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name.